Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you have time, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other listeners find us, and we read them for your feedback. We'd also love you to join in financially supporting the show if you're able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitik.com slash donate. We are here for you, with you, and because of you. Thank you. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. For the month of January, we're bringing you fresh voices from the podcasting world in our series, Our Body Politic Presents. Each week, you'll hear a different show take us on a journey of news, narrative, and emotion. This week, we're featuring the work of Into America, a podcast about Black life by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Tremaine Lee of MSNBC. Sometimes, Lee takes us into his America, for example, interviewing the author of one of his nine-year-old daughter Nola's favorite books. Now, Nola loves the graphic novel New Kid about a black boy who goes to a wealthy, mostly white private school in New York City. It's based on the life of author Jerry Craft, and it's won awards, including the prestigious Newbery Medal. But New Kid was also attacked by people who wanted to ban the book, claiming it promoted critical race theory and Marxism. Here on Our Body Politic, we've covered banned books many times, and we will continue to. Here's an excerpt of Into America's episode. Take a look. It's in a banned book. Do you draw? Um, I draw a little bit. I usually do, like, tutorials on YouTube. But, like, I do draw kind of. This is my nine-year-old daughter, Nola. And on the other end of the Zoom call is the author and illustrator, Jerry Craft. He's sharing a screen and showing us how he draws the characters from his award-winning graphic novel, New Kid. Oh, yeah, I know what character this is. You only get one shot now. Which one is it? It's Jordan. There you go. It's Jordan, yeah. (laughs) Yep, you're absolutely right. Wow. That's amazing. Jerry was drawing Jordan Banks, the main character in New Kid. The companion book that came out last year is called Class Act. I asked Nola if she had any questions about the characters. I had a question, like, what happened to Drew's parents? You know, I never figured that out. <laughs> because even in the first book, when he got into a little shoving match with Andy, I had him where he got suspended. And my own sons were so mad at me <laughs> that I actually had to change it. That's good. You should listen to your kids. For everyone out there. I do. Listen to your kids. <laughs> I do. They're the truth makers. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> the truth. There you that. go. <laughs> Always remember that. For months, I'd been seeing Jerry's book, New Kid. I thought about getting it for Nola, but wasn't sure she was quite old enough. But as I was wondering whether or not Nola was old enough, some parents had other concerns. New at 6 o'clock tonight, campus controversy. A petition circulating over a scheduled guest speaker at one KDISD school. That speaker is a children's book author. Jerry Kraft writes stories about African-American boys dealing with race issues in school. So a group of KDISD parents is calling that critical race theory. Earlier this fall, new kid got swept up in the conservative uproar over teaching critical race theory in public education even though the theory wasn't actually being taught. A group of parents in the Katy Independent School District of Texas started a petition to cancel an upcoming book event with Kraft at one of the local elementary schools. 
important. It goes even further than that virtual visit being postponed today. I've just learned that those books have now been removed from the district's libraries while KDISD reviews them. Four of Kraft's books have been included in a list of over 800 books being investigated by a Texas Republican lawmaker. Also on the list is Between the World and Me by Tanasi Coates, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, and How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Many of the authors on the list are other people of color or LGBTQ+. Now, there are important conversations to be had about what's appropriate for children to read and when. But when we start banning books, are we really having that conversation? I'm Tremaine Lee, and this is Into America. Today, we talk with author and illustrator Jerry Kraft on the importance of creating black characters that he recognized and how it felt to have that experience stripped from the shelves. It's basically, you can't tell those stories because those stories are, what, racist? But it's because of treatment like that that I make stories like this in the first place. Author and illustrator Jerry Kraft is 58 years old. We caught up with him at his home in Norwalk, Connecticut. But that's not where he's from originally. I was born in Harlem, grew up in the Washington Heights section of New York City, and just like my main character, Jordan Banks from New Kid, I wanted to be an artist. Hmm. When you were coming up, um, were you seeing characters that looked like you? Were you seeing um, people that looked like they come from your community? No, almost never. Hmm. Reading a book, to me, was punishment. I would rather clean my room, take out the garbage. Mm. I read Marvel Comics, and in a lot of ways, I felt like I had more in common with Peter Parker, who was Spider-Man, than I did with any Black characters, because to me, even in, in the comic books, the Black characters were sidekicks. When he wrote New Kid, Jerry was able to tell the story of his own upbringing. He combined his personal anecdotes with the experiences of his sons, who are both in their early 20s now. That's where the character Jordan Banks comes in. So he is 12 years old. He wants to be an artist. His parents do not want him to be an artist. So they send him to a prestigious private school in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. And now, you know, as a light-skinned Black kid, you know, with straight mm. hair and light skin, he didn't look like the kids around his block. And now he goes to Riverdale Academy Day School, where most of the kids are white. And, you know, it's a prestigious private school. So a lot of the, the, the families are pretty wealthy. And he's trying to fit in there. And I, I wanted to have a lot of humor in it. Because I think a lot of times as African-Americans, we develop such a sharp sense of humor because that's our coping mechanism to deal with a lot of mm -hmm. the other things that happen on the day-to-day -day level, you know. And I think the big thing is I didn't want there to be like one devastating thing. Like, I think we're programmed that every time we see a black movie or mm -hmm. a black TV show, a black book, that as soon as we like a character, something catastrophic is going to happen. And I did not want that. I wanted it to be like the little tiny things that we see on a day-to-day -day basis as opposed to one like destructive thing that just changes the plot of the entire book. 
And usually that's how it happens for black folks in everyday life, right? It's not always, it's not a cross burning in your yard. Right. It's the little fires, the little embers, the little cuts that you experience day to day, not like some big cataclysmic thing all the time. Right. It's you going to Costco and talking to one of the salespeople and someone cuts right in front of you like you don't exist, you know? Mm-hmm. So those are the kinds of things, you know, Drew and Jordan, who are the two African-American characters, get, you know, called by the wrong name. Or they mm-hmm. assume they have assumptions, you know. Oh, Jordan, who do you live with? Just your mom? No, I live with mm-hmm. my mom and my dad. You live with your dad? You know, like those little things, but just that they can, you know, add up to a lot. New Kid was published in 2019, and it was a massive hit. A New York Times bestseller, winner of the Coretta Scott King Award. And you know those gold medallions that you see on the covers of classic kids' books? The John Newberry Medal? New Kid was the first graphic novel to win that honor. Jerry was invited to give talks to schools all over the country. But when he had a virtual appearance scheduled at an elementary school outside of Houston, he got a cancellation notice. It is inappropriate instructional material. They are pointed at white children displaying microaggressions to children of color. That's Bonnie Anderson, a white Texas parent, in an interview with the NBC news station in Houston. Anderson also said that Jerry's books were promoting critical race theory and Marxism. The Katy Independent School District postponed the talk and Jerry's books were pulled from the school district libraries. I mean, I was shocked. And what I say to everyone, I, ha- I did what most people did. I had to Google critical race theory and try to find out how, <laughs> I, was, how I was teaching it. You yourself, you didn't know what it was. No. Wow. You know, I mean, I don't sit down and go, oh, this is what I'm going to do. My book is not instructional. It is not an academic book. It is loosely based on my life and my two sons' lives. And, you know, Hmm. like this still happens to me. I have gone to schools to do school visits, and they thought I was there to fix the copier. That's crazy. You know what I mean? (laughs) That's, That's insane. What? So if I tell that story, those stories are what, racist, when I'm talking about how Mm. I'm treated? We reached out to the school district, and they declined to comment. And the parent who made the complaint, Bonnie Anderson, did not respond to us. Here's more of her interview with Houston's NBC affiliate. The books don't come out and say, we want white children to feel like oppressors, but that is absolutely what they will do. That is a hell of a statement right there about, again, a book that reflects your experience. Right. And, and that's, that's the problem, is that um, that is not in the book. Hmm. You know, if you don't want your, your specific kid to read it, a book, as a mom or a dad, you have every right to protect your kids if you feel that they need protecting. But just because you don't want your kid to read it, that you take it away from everyone else's kid, then that, you know, that's worse than what I'm accused of doing. You know what I mean? After a formal review by the school district, Jerry's books were put back on the shelves. And the kids at the Texas Elementary School finally got to attend Jerry's virtual talk. He said it went great. And despite the whole ordeal, Jerry is trying to stay positive. If you had to sit down and think about everything that happens to you during the day, you might not ever leave the house. (laughs) Right, yeah. You know, these kids are waiting for book three. 
which I'm working on now. I'll tell you what, Jerry, you, you might have landed on some banned book list, but where you're not banned is Into America, brother. <laughs> thank you. Or my household. So well, thank, thank you, Jerry. you. I appreciate that. <laughs> that was an excerpt from the episode, Take a Look, It's in a Banned Book, from the podcast Into America by MSNBC. Coming up next, more Into America. Welcome back to Our Body Politic and our month-long series showcasing innovative podcasts. This week, Our Body Politic presents features Into America from MSNBC with award-winning host Tremaine Lee. On May 25, 2020, George Floyd walked into Cup Foods to purchase cigarettes. The clerk he bought them from was named Christopher Martin, and he was just 18 years old. Martin noticed that the $20 bill Floyd used was counterfeit and told his manager, That triggered the call to police that brought Officer Derek Chauvin, who knelt on Floyd's neck outside the store until he was dead. A jury later found Chauvin guilty of murder. Christopher Martin has been living with the sadness, numbness, and grief of this tragedy. Tremaine Lee and the Into America team take us deep into Martin's life and what it says about race and justice in their episode, After George Floyd. To say that George Floyd's murder shook America would be an understatement. We watched his slow death unfold before our eyes, and we counted the minutes and the seconds that it took for a disgraced former cop to squeeze his life away. And it ached. But for nearly all of us, this aching, disturbing spectacle of police violence and Black death was felt from a distance, physically, geographically. And for those who don't know or love people like George Floyd or live in communities like his, it very well could have felt like peering into a far off universe, nothing like your own. In that way, we were all spectators, haunted by what we saw and what we felt, but distant spectators nonetheless. There were others who didn't have the privilege of distance. People who were there in Minneapolis on that terrible day last year and saw it happen with their own eyes. During the trial of Floyd's murderer, Derek Chauvin, we heard from witness after witness who stood just feet away. I stayed up apologizing and and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more. I can feel helpless. I don't have a mama either, but I understand him. And when you went out there, uh, what did you see? I saw people yelling and screaming. I saw um, Derek with his knee on George's neck, on the ground. George was motionless, limp, and Chauvin seemed very, he was in a resting state, meaning like he just rested his knee on his neck. That last one was Christopher Martin. As an 18-year-old clerk at the corner store, 
Cup Foods, Christopher took the counterfeit $20 bill from George Floyd that day, prompting that fateful 911 call that drew Floyd, Chauvin, and a cast of reluctant witnesses together on May 25th, 2020. In surveillance footage played during the trial, Christopher paces back and forth, his hands on his head, sinking as Floyd lay prone and then motionless. It was an image the nation came to know Christopher by. But there's more to his story. He grew up in South Minneapolis, moved with his family into an apartment above the store just months earlier. And before that day, he was just a teenager with a cool little gig at the shop who was trying to find his way in the world. But what he saw happen that day, outside of Cup Foods, would change him in ways he could have never imagined. The only, the only way I got through it was God. I had to pray. And it would sometimes just be, God, I need you. I can't do this alone. And just sit there in silence. I'm Tremaine Lee, and this is Into America. On this week's episode, we look toward the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death with a rare, intimate conversation with Christopher Martin. We talk about his life before George Floyd, the trauma of that day, and how he's trying to move forward a year later. Chris Martin has spent the last year wrestling with his role that day. Here's what he told Good Morning America in the days after he testified. Not only am I, like, the contributing factor, I'm kind of, like, the big domino that fell. And then now all the small dominoes are just scattered. When I talk to Chris, he's wearing a black hoodie, leaning back into a couch in the place he shares with his mom and sister. Did you have a sense of how seismic the shift in your life would be? Even then, did you notice that something was big happening? In that moment, um, I knew it was a big deal because someone had just gotten their life taken away. Hmm. But I guess in my mind, I didn't really connect the fact that everyone was recording. So what scared the crap out of me was when I went home and I get on TikTok and there's just like a TikTok and I'm in it. Wow. And it's just like a million, like millions of views. And I'm just like, this is insane. And then like the next day, Going back uh, home, obviously it's where I live, and there's like thousands of people on the block. Like, it's really crowded. You can barely even walk. Everyone's honking. It's just like, I had never seen anything like it. So, but yeah, I had no idea it was going to be on this big of a scale. What was going through your mind when you, you, you go on a TikTok and you see this? What is your first reaction? Like, what were your first thoughts? I was shocked because of how many views it had gotten. But at that same moment, I was a little bit afraid because I was wondering if, like, I would get any backlash, being as though I'm the one that took the bill and all those other things. Backlash from from who? Just from anyone. Like, mostly just, like, social media backlash. The craziest thing, man, is, like, you just went to work one day. Mm -hmm. Just went to work. And then everything, just the world cracked open. Does it feel like that? Like you've been living in some sort of alternate shaken world since? (laughs) No, not really. But I'll be honest, when I think about that day and like how it made me feel, I think I am 
a lot more traumatized than I realized because I can't really pinpoint a feeling on it, if that makes any sense. Mm. My mind just kind of like blocks it out. It won't let me like access certain parts of that day. And I also had never seen him in cut foods. Um, so usually I'm pretty familiar with who comes in and out because I work cashier. Um, but that was the first time I had seen him and the first time I had talked to him. Hmm. And unfortunately, the last. Um, but um, yeah, I just remember like taking the bill from him, telling my boss, and then going back outside with my hand on my head. And honestly, I was feeling like very helpless and panicky. And also like when I had to talk to one of my bosses um, after it happened, I literally was like had a panic attack while I was talking to him about it. He, to this day, doesn't even know that I did. It just kind of happened where, like, my heart is just, like, beating through my chest. Mm. Um, and I've never, like, fainted from a panic attack. But usually when they happen, I just, like, my heart beats through my chest and I just, like, can't function. For you, as you were wrestling with the reality of what went down, what was the hardest part for you? I think the hardest part for me was when I would sit back and think of, like, what if that part really haunted me? Because obviously no one in the store knew that he would lose his life. But it's just the simple fact of like, what if I would have not said anything and just taken the bill and then paid for it later on? Hmm. Um, Or like, what if I had just told them to leave, like drive away, go home or whatever. There's so many what ifs in this situation. It's like, it just drives you crazy because you know you can never go back in time and change it. But in my mind, when I think of a what if, I kind of play it out and try to see what would happen. Hmm. It's kind of makes me feel insane at that point. You know, you've talked about you in that moment as the big domino. And then it tipped and scattered all the small dominoes and we saw everything kind of fall after that. Looking back a year later, how do you assess your, your, your space in that? in the big domino, do you still see yourself that way? Or now in hindsight, do you see things a little differently? I definitely do see things uh, a little differently. I'd probably say I'm more the medium-sized domino. And then also, I kind of tried a few times to just stop all the other ones from falling, if that makes mm. any sense. I kind of went off course purposefully. Um, but yeah, I definitely, over, over time... And the more I analyze the situation, um, I feel less and less guilty about it. In that moment when my head, like when my hands were over my head and I was looking at the whole scene, it kind of like felt like something supernatural was at work that I couldn't control. And I thought it was evil, obviously. What was happening to George was just like unexplainable. But um, it's like, I kept thinking in my head, as I said before, you know, what if, like, what if I just go out there and move this dude or like try to fight him? Hmm. Like thoughts like that, where it was just like, I wasn't even too much thinking about white and black. I was more thinking of, this is a human, first and foremost. Secondly, it's a father. That's what I was thinking about more than anything, because I actually had to grow up without my father. Um, and so I, my first thought went straight to his kids. I'm like, wow, this is... Hmm. I don't even, there's not a word for it. Um, growing up in an African-American household without a father creates a lot of 
arguments, problems, and there's not enough structure. So that's always hard to deal with. We're back with Christopher Martin, the store clerk who witnessed Derek Chauvin murder George Floyd nearly one year ago. Floyd's death prompted calls for police reform on a scale we haven't seen in decades. I asked Chris whether his views of policing have changed at all over the past year. Well, actually, before the George Floyd incident, um, I never have ever supported uh, police in any way, shape, or form. Um, But I have, in my mind, I've always known that obviously not all of them are bad, but I've never really liked them, supported them, wanted to talk to them, wanted anything to do with police. I actually said that in my FBI interview because they kept they subpoenaed me and I didn't want to do it. And then they were like, okay, well, if you don't talk to us, then you're going to have to come to court. And I was like, wow. So then I talked to them and I was like, yeah, I don't, want, I don't want to talk to police because I don't trust you. The system is rigged against us. When it comes to um, situations like that with the police, I've actually seen with my own eyes my older brother get slammed against the wall because he told the police officer not to touch me. Hmm. So it's like, and that was when I was like, 13, I remember it like it was yesterday. I was walking outside my front door. Um, I had my soccer bag. In the soccer bag was my water bottle and my cleats and my shin guards. And I had all my soccer stuff on. I don't even remember why they were at our house. They were um, looking for something. But anyways, I go past the police officers and one of them's like, hey, hey, what's in the bag? And my brother's like, don't touch my brother. And then he literally just like slammed him against the wall. And I'm just like, my heart's like racing. And I'm just like, I give it to him. And it's obviously my water bottle and cleats. And it's like, that in itself is just so uncalled for. I'm 13 years old. At that point, I was maybe five foot tall. I don't know how tall. And you have to search my bag. Hmm. And I'm walking out the front door. Like, that's where it's like, cops do not have the training they need at all. When you heard that you were going to be like called to court, what feelings were going through your mind? So actually, the, the prosecution called me up to see if I would do it. So a lot of the witnesses had the choice of whether or not to be on trial, and I actually chose to be on trial. Um, and I wanted to tell the story from my point of view and just get it off my chest. But um, leading up to it, I wasn't thinking too much about it because it had been my first time in court. Like, I've never been arrested or anything like that, so I didn't know what it, what it would have been like. When I got there, though, I was so nervous. And raise your right hand. When the judge was like, spell your name, I felt like I was about to throw up. Date your full name and spell each of your names. Uh, Christopher Martin, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-P-H-E-R. Last name Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N. This is Frank. Thank you, Ryan. Like. I was sweating bullets. My armpits were drenched. We saw you standing there with your hands on your head for a while, correct? Correct. What was going through your mind during that time period? Uh, Uh, Disbelief and guilt. Why guilt? Um, If I would have just not taken the bill, this could have been avoided. Actually, during the first recess break, someone texted me and was like, I'm watching you right now, you're doing so great. I was like, what do you mean? Right. Like, this is insane. And then once the trial was over, my phone was like ding central. I couldn't even get on my phone. It was ridiculous. And after you leave the courtroom for the last time, 
what happened next? Um, so I got on my phone just to see, you know, what people were saying. And one of my close friends from high school was like, yo, you need to get on Twitter. I was like, why? And he's like, you're trending. <laughs> That's crazy. And I get on Twitter and I see this one person. I think I, I have this screenshot. And he said, like, Christopher Martin's composure is extremely well. Or some way he said it. The way he put it just made me, like, really feel good on my inside. Um, after I saw that tweet that um, I think it was someone famous had said that I was extremely composed, I started crying. I started, like, sobbing. And it was like an ugly cry. Mm. So I'm like, man. Like I said before, I can't really, I couldn't pinpoint my emotion. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I just cried. So then the verdict is read. Chauvin is guilty on all three counts. We can call him a murderer, which we saw with our own eyes. Uh, <laughs> what was that feeling like for you? Man, that was a different feeling because I did not think he was going to get all three charges. Mm. I'm going to be brutally honest. I thought he was going to get the second worst thing. Um, so to, to hear he got all three, I was like, God is good. Yeah. That's all I could think. I'm like, yes, that's what we needed. Did it feel like the page is turning? Like, was that, did that signal the end of anything for you? Yes and no. Um, yes, because I feel like I did, the, the job is done, you know? No, because I know, like, I still have to talk about it going forward. Um, and then kind of like George's brother said, um, Derek may be in, in prison, but, you know, George is in the ground. Mm. So, you know, that, that, I feel like that's one thing that any witness and anyone that knows George Floyd, like, we'll have to take that to our graves, which uh, really sucks. But, you know, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, but I do think a lot of people are saying on social media that this isn't even justice. This is just holding him accountable. And that was one thing where I felt, I felt stupid when I read that because when I first heard that he was um, proven guilty, I was like, wow, justice. And then to read like, no, nah, this isn't justice. This is just holding him accountable. I was like, wow, that's a good point. It's a right. good thing I didn't say anything. Wow. It's crazy. That was an excerpt from After George Floyd by the podcast Into America, covering Black life, politics, and culture from MSNBC. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Tremaine Lee is the host. These episodes of Into America were produced by Isabel Angel, Allison Bailey, Aaron Dalton, Ellen Frankman, Max Jacobs, Joshua Sarodiak, and Aisha Turner. You can listen to Into America wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we will feature content from the podcast Translash. Please join us. Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. And joining me this week for a special roundtable on COVID and health is Dr. Kavita Patel, primary care physician and former Obama White House Health Policy Director. Hi, Dr. Patel. Hi, Fred. Thanks for having me. So glad that you're with us. And we've also got Dr. Bernard Ashby, a Miami cardiologist and Florida State lead for the Committee to Protect Healthcare. Welcome, Dr. Ashby. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. 
So we're in year three of the pandemic, and a lot of people have been depressed, scared, pushed to their limits. Um, addiction is up. Mental health crises are up. And this is a holistic issue that's affecting families, schools, and individuals. So there are many transitions happening in how the response to the pandemic is panning out. The White House announced that they're going to be sending 400 million free N95 masks to pharmacies and other locations starting next week. They're also launching a website where Americans can re- request free at-home COVID-19 tests. I personally requested mine. There have been frustrations, however, about the timing of the administration's response. The, these measures might have been great during the holidays when so many people were traveling and visiting other people. So, Dr. Patel, you were an advisor in the Obama White House. What do you make of the response of the Biden-Harris administration and, and, you know, how we can think of it? Yeah, thanks uh, for having me. And and I'll be pretty transparent. Uh, It's the only way I can be. It is, unfortunately, a misstep in the sense that this would have been better, not just three months ago, but candidly, many of us, um, and I think Dr. Ashby as well, we're asking for these types of measures, tests that are available for Americans at home, masks, and even actually better ventilation, which is still not being addressed in many buildings and schools around the country. We've been asking for this for going on about two years. And so it does feel a little bit like an umbrella in a hurricane, but I just, I guess I'm glad that at least now we have something website running, some you know attention to this, because sadly, even if Omicron is the worst surge we've had so far, it's not the last. The U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, said on Sunday that Omicron hasn't peaked yet. From, from what I understand, there are some places which, you know, regionally may have peaked. Dr. Patel, what do you think about variants and and I mean, we have to think about it in some ways, but for those of us who aren't medical professionals, should we even be obsessed about what comes next? I mean, I, I don't know if we can help it, but there's nothing we can do. I, I don't think it's um, unnatural to ask what's next. Um, we were all joking around. We we're like, what's the Greek letter after Omicron? Because that's what we're going to, you know. Yes, like, exactly. Like, when, when do we get that ready? Um, so a couple of things, like if you follow the, uh, like the genetic arc of where we are from the original Wuhan strain, um, to kind of Omicron today, the numbers of mutations, and actually how elegant these mutations are. The Omicron mutations are so elegant, and elegant mm. in, in a word, truly, where it predisposes Omicron to crowd out the ability of any of the other strains to grow, and it replicates just so efficiently in the upper airways compared to kind of what we call the alveoli, the end part of the lungs, so to speak. That represents two years, uh, maybe a little bit more, of this virus just being smart. And Mm -hmm. we need to be smarter. And it gets to, yes, there will be more variants. But I'm hoping that the the next sets of variants will be met with a next generation Omicron, or at least variant uh, kind of specific vaccine that's updated. We know we need to do that. And then hopefully over time, but it will probably take years we will have this like very, you know, there won't be as much uh, news about outbreaks. It's not even that it's endemic. I think we could get to an endemic status, meaning that this just becomes a virus that causes disease in a smaller group of people uh, for different reasons than the way it is now, where it feels so arbitrary. Everybody's getting infected, even if vaccinated. So I think we will move to that point soon hopefully after Omicron, but I don't know. But we also will, also, we will have, in addition to updated vaccines, we will have more oral therapeutics. We've been using them in our clinic 
they're working. There's just not enough of them. And mm-hmm. other therapeutics, which the President Trump had uh, the earliest access to, but many Americans still don't. And so I do think that that'll become a little more normal. Dr. Ashby, we talked a little bit with Dr. Patel about politics and how it affects people's responses. You are in Florida and throughout the pandemic, your governor, Ron DeSantis, has taken pride in bucking COVID precautions. In early January, as Omicron was peaking, he urged asymptomatic Floridians to forego testing, and it was revealed he let almost one million COVID tests expire. So you're on the medical front lines in Florida. How have you seen all of this in in terms of leadership play out? See, I was in a good mood until you brought that up. And Dr. Patel, you you know I get turned up. I mean, listen. DeSantis is is the worst example of callousness and disregard for human lives and and how politics can become so just evil to the point where you have individuals who are willing to blatantly lie, mischaracterize, and lead folks in a direction that is actually to their own detriment just for political gain. And that's exactly what we're seeing with DeSantis across the board, not to mention the fact that he is capitalizing in every possible way from this pandemic, from uh, the, you know, the business of it with uh, regard to the therapeutics uh, and uh, funding his campaign at an astronomical level uh, to you know, allocating uh, a lot of the funds that, that are supposed to go to the general population. Uh, to large businesses and, you know, the monoclonal antibody therapy, for example, he's patting himself on the back uh, for being one of the few uh, who advocated for that, who are non-physicians, even though we've been talking about it forever. And, you know, in the middle of the Delta surge, after he didn't do anything, he started promoting um, monoclonal antibodies. And the first thing that he did was host a roundtable with the hospital CEOs. You know, you know, newsflash, uh, the monoclonal antibody therapy is an outpatient regimen, okay? Uh, if you're getting it at the hospital, for most folks, it's too late. It needs to be given uh, in communities, in clinics like mine, uh, who are more likely to get in, be in first contact with the patient. It, but he didn't really care about uh, the efficacy of, or the effectiveness of monoclonal antibody therapy cared more about the optics of it. And uh, and you can see that in the strategy because he didn't do anything else. He didn't, didn't address medi- mitigation, didn't address uh, actually protecting uh, our most vulnerable. His big solution to the Delta surge midway through was, uh, you know, uh, monoclonal antibody therapy and, and didn't even deploy it right. So, you know, this just goes to how important it is for us as physicians and public health work um, experts to be more astute when it comes to the politics, but also um, just uh, the psychology of the pandemic, uh, geopolitics comprehensive and and, uh, global in our understanding, because it's not just about the science, it's really about uh, the the power dynamics and the politics at play, which often interfere with our ability to address our individual patients and the public health. And uh, I've learned an important lesson, and that's something that we're working to address with the Committee to Protect Healthcare in terms of 
building our, our power base to not only just uh, inform the, the public and uh, advocate for them, but to apply force against those who serve to do harm against our population. You're listening to Sip in the Political Tea on Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. This week, we're doing a special roundtable on COVID and the impacts of the pandemic with Dr. Bernard Ashby and Dr. Kavita Patel. If you're just tuning in, you can catch the whole conversation on our podcast. Just find Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts. I want both of you to weigh on this, but Dr. Patel, you know, this this has been a huge mental health crisis. Gallup polling from December showed Americans' mental health is at an all-time low. Morning consult polling found that one in five healthcare workers have quit their jobs since the pandemic began. And you're both practicing physicians. And, and Dr. Patel, you first, and then Dr. Ashby, how do we deal with the mental health crisis within the larger pandemic crisis? Yeah, I think we actually have to deal with it um, outside of just uh, saying to people, well, you know, therapy might help you, or it would be a great idea for you to see a psychologist or a behavioral social worker, which is actually what standardly, I have 15 minutes to see patients, and that's generally what I would do. I'd screen for depression and anxiety, and if it were flag positive, I'd say, listen, I'm concerned, but here, here's the name of somebody who can help you, and then it's up to you for I to go figure out how to do all that. We can't do that anymore. My most common, my practice is um, like 99% Latina, and it's because I'm a woman and I speak Spanish, so I kind of have this um, mm-hmm. similar population. The most common complaint people come to me is not the one that's on their kind of presentation. It's what I call the doorknob question. I'm about to walk out, and then they're like, you know, my hair is falling out. I'm not sleeping. Mm -hmm. I don't know what to do. I've been gaining weight, and I don't know why. And what I've witnessed is two years, especially the women I see, of constant chronic stress. Mm -hmm. That if I could take their cortisol levels, it would be the same as if they were hit by a bus on a daily basis, because that's what is happening. So stress and mental health and all these things, and they're kind of manifestations of that are completely related. And so we have to, we also have to do this outside of the conventional healthcare system because it doesn't work. And so I am hoping because you have all these employers that are interested in, you know, keeping people safe by, you know, masks and this, and what, what do we need to do in the workplace? I've been trying really hard to kind of add to that. How are we going to do kind of mental health screener? How can you provide services in a convenient way? On a policy front, we have to extend telehealth services and allow for flexibility. I can do much more on the phone with one of my patients who works at a grocery store and only has 15 minutes for me in the middle of her day than telling her to go try to find someone that is covered by her Medicaid plan and be Mm -hmm. on an eight-month wait list. And that applies to children, too. And then I really – I know President Biden uh, had a very long press conference uh, prior to this podcast, but – I would love to see in the president's uh, new budget, and I'd love to see in what I suspect will be an upcoming COVID relief package, because we'll probably need one, is to see a significant amount of money in mental health services and education and kind of place, you know, having school-based services for mental health inside, literally inside the schools where we've really done damage to children and their families as well. Yeah, and and definitely I have seen in my own circle a lot of my friends with their kids struggling with depression in in one case you know um really life threatening and and dr ashby how is this manifesting in in your community and and how you think about your work you know the the idea of um mental wellness and and how we seek it at this really 
complex and, and fraught time. Well, you know, this, this pandemic has, in my estimation, revealed our country for what it is. And so one thing about the U.S. is that we're really good at PR and marketing and, and presenting things in a certain way, uh, contrary to the reality of, of circumstances. And um, things like mental health are just not a priority. It's, it's something we talk about because it's good PR, but uh, you can always tell what we really care about by our allocation of funding and, and the resources that we deploy to certain issues. And that includes healthcare. So, you know, I guess something's better than nothing. But at the end of the day, uh, our healthcare system is oriented to make money, period. And uh, anything that we do uh, beyond that is, is trying to work around those confines. So as long as uh, we have a for-profit here, healthcare system that uh, is incentivized to, to make money, we'll continue to have uh, the same issues that we're seeing and we'll, we'll continue to spend a uh, god-awful amount on healthcare that doesn't actually get translated into outcomes for our patients. It's always going to be fo focused on making money with uh, prevention and mental health and you know, um, just overall quality of life as is 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 an afterthought. And we're going to have to wrap it up. There's so much to talk about. But, um, you know, I'm going to end with you, Dr. Patel. And any thoughts you have on kids, schools, the emotional wellness of kids and the physical wellness of kids, what can both people who, who have kids or who have responsibilities for kids, like physicians and, and teachers, be doing or thinking? Yeah, I'm going to be very practical. And I try to be optimistic again, because I don't know what else to do anymore. But one, I do think that uh, you have to be an advocate for your child. I mean, I think all working parents, parents in general, families in general, try to do it. But we're all operating on like duct tape and scotch tape in life right now. But I think you have to like, rise up and try to advocate for your child because it's not going to be, let me take you to the pediatrician. That pediatrician is also holding it together with duct tape and they leave the room like I do and don't know quite what to do. So advocate for your child, including talking to the very teachers who are also holding it together, but will take the time because that's what they do to think about how to address some of the issues. And then number two, I think one of the things I see in parents, um, some parents are truly in fear of, of getting of their child getting infected or someone in the household being infected. And I think we're going to have to give people better ways to control some of the fear around infection because we do have, as you point out, not just the vaccines. Our therapeutics right now, unfortunately, are only limited to 12 and above. They are working on oral therapeutics for the under 12 age group, and that will be critical because that'll give us a little bit more of a safety net where if you get that infection, your heart doesn't stop, which mine would have two years ago because I didn't know what was happening. And then the third very practical thing, incredibly pragmatic, is this push to get tests out for free from the Biden administration. You can't test out of COVID, but use that test to help also balance the risk and allow for you to allow your family to do things that will help your child feel the best that they can be. For my son, it's playing soccer and it has to be indoors because of weather. And I'm doing exactly that. He's vaccinated um, and I'm trying to balance how we can test him and make sure. 
But I also know that if he gets infected, him being vaccinated gives me a cushion. So do that and go into these kind of um, environments thinking about what's the most important. You know your kids best. What's the most important? And then they sense fear. Children are so smart. They sense everything. And in the absence of a direct conversation, children will put something in there and there, something gets in their heads so address the fear. I told my children early on, I am scared, you know, and I didn't say, I didn't quite say what I should have. I'm scared I might die, but I should have uh, because they understand they do. And they're five and seven. And I, but I think that you, I sh- it was good that I told them I was scared, but then they saw me go to work. So address the fear because it actually helps them feel less afraid knowing what you're feeling instead of kind of making up what you're feeling. Dr. Patel, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And Dr. Ashby, thank you as well. Thank you. And we have been speaking again with Dr. Bernard Ashby, a Miami cardiologist and Florida State lead for the Committee to Protect Health Care, and Dr. Kavita Patel, a primary care physician and former Obama White House health policy director. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms. I am the executive producer and host, Farai Chidea. Bridget McAllister is our booker and producer. Emily J. Daly and Bianca Martin are our producers. Our associate producer is Natina Bean. Production and editing services are by Clean Cuts at 3Cs. Today's episode was produced by Lauren Schild. Archie Moore, Andrew Epic, and Mike Gaylor are sound engineers. We would also like to once again thank the podcast Into America, these episodes of Into America were produced by Isabel Angel, Allison Bailey, Aaron Dalton, Ellen Frankman, Max Jacobs, Joshua Sorodiak, and Aisha Turner. You can listen to Into America wherever you get your podcast. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.